Hello and welcome to No Direction's official PaizoCon 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. Our coverage would not be possible without the help of our con staff, Paizo, and our patrons. Find more seminar recordings at nodirectionpodcast.com. All right, let's go ahead and get started. I am your host today. I am whatever you might hear. I am not a werewolf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm your host, Liz Kortz. Uh, I have been uh, publishing works in the gaming industry in some form for the last, what year is it? 2019? Mm-hmm. 12 years, give or take. <laughs> um, I started the Wayfinder fanzine uh, back in 2010, 20, no, 2009. It's been a long time. <laughs> I also worked at Paizo from 2010 to 2016. I was the web store specialist and the community manager. <laughs> Thank you. Aww. As the web store specialist, I handled a lot of the incoming third-party publisher uh, PDFs that were uploaded to the site, as well as handled a lot of the behind-the-scenes logistics, which a lot of you probably never saw. But. Um, I have been exposed to pretty much every stage of creating a PD, uh, creating a role-playing game book. I've been a writer, I've been an editor, I've been a developer, I've been an artist, I've been a cartographer, I've been a layout. Uh, I have, you know, published your PDFs. I have pushed them to social media. I have shipped them to conventions. So that's why I'm kind of uniquely qualified for this for this particular presentation. So we are going to be breaking this panel topic into a couple of different things. I use animated GIFs <laughs> throughout my presentation because it does help with uh, um, memory. So panel topics are going to be planning, production, presentation, proofing, publication, and hopefully profit. So um, before you ever start actually writing a uh, book, and for which you can use book as a general term, uh, a book or project, uh, is figure out what you want to do. And the reason for that is it's very easy to, you know, get caught up in the moment of things like, oh, this is cool, oh, this is cool, oh, this is cool. Again, this is the social contract for the uh, panel. Uh, it will be making pauses for questions. Please make it an actual question. <laughs> uh, I love anecdotes, but not in, this spa- and not in this space because we are limited time and this is a shared space. Don't be rude. Treat each other's other attendees nicely. And it is a very small industry and it's good to make friends. <laughs> so, I don't think people realize how small of an industry it is. It is really tiny. Paizo is actually one of the bigger companies and they have, I would say about 60 to 70 employees, which in, you know, in business terms is not a lot. It's still considered a small business. But it is a big business for the, for the hobby gaming. So, planning. One of the things you need to immediately start out with is figure out what do you want to make. If you were a big beginning publisher, it's very tempting to want to write a 300-page campaign setting, um, but don't. <laughs> uh, for a lot of reasons that I'll be getting into. So the most successful third-party publishers I have seen have started out very small, but are consistent in their releases. Um, there was a, a right publishing a couple years back did one PDF a week for an entire year, which is 52 PDFs. They weren't very long. They're maybe 8 to 12 pages long. And this is not including, you know, table of contents, licensing, you know, credits, that sort of thing. 
but they're released every week. And what that does is when you create small frequent PDFs, is every time you release something new, you are attracting an, a new audience to your PDF, to your re-releases, to you specifically. And depending on what the topic is, somebody's like, oh, I really did need a book on kobolds. Let me see, what they, this is really cool. I wonder what else they have. If they say you have a pre-existing back catalog, you're going to create a new customer who's going to be interested in the things that you're releasing uh, consistently. Also, creating small releases means you can later collect them into a larger edition. So, and this is very important <laughs> for later reasons. Again, we've got multiple things to cover here. Now, my definitely start small. Um, it is very tempting to always to just go all out and do everything you want to do. Make your tallest, you know, city hardcover that's you know 500 pages long. Do not recommend. <laughs> now, in publishing, there is a difference between page count and word count. Assignments are done by word count because the page count can vary tremendous, or the word words per page can vary tremendously on a number of factors. Um, and those key factors are what is the page design, what is the font choice, how much art is in the book, how many tables do you have? <laughs> this is the one that actually uh, doing layout myself, this is something that gets tripped up quite a bit. It's like, yes, you budgeted this many for this, this chapter for this many pages, but you have a table that takes up an entire page <laughs> because it is full of equipment. <laughs> or they suddenly decide, I want a feed index or you know something like that. So as an example, when I was putting together the Wayfinder, I budgeted 1,500 words for two pages. 750 words per page uh, allows for a quarter page, uh, a quarter page piece of art per page, or per two page spread. And there's pages, which is the individual pages spread. So when you open it up, two page spread. So I'm gonna be using the Pathfinder Adventure Path volumes as an example and several examples. And on average, a Pathfinder AP volume is 96 pages long and a budget of 96,000 words. Again, does not include table of contents um, or credits or the OGL. Uh, and for those that don't know, OGL is the Open Gaming License, which is a whole other topic. <laughs> um, so the best thing you can do is, when you're planning, what you want to do is to outline. This is the very broad strokes idea of what you want to do in the PDF. Keep it small, keep it focused. Um, because things happen when you don't stay focused. Um, so the very basics you're gonna have, credits, table of contents, some sort of introduction. This is for, for you as a publisher, and I'm gonna assume you guys, some of you guys, it's publishing focus kind of panel, so I'm gonna, that's what I'm gonna, the assumption I'm gonna make. This is your chance to make it personal and um, people really respond to that personal connection. You're like, I came up with this idea when I was playing, you know, uh, oh what was that? A, Tucker's Kobolds back in the day. And that's the kind of thing that, those are the stories that people remember of, um, this is why I made this. Like, I really like Kobolds. I actually really do like Kobolds, <laughs> for the record. That's why I keep bringing them up. Uh, and then you're gonna have your content. Again, keep it focused. Like, I need 1,500 words of feats. I need 3,000 words of uh, archetypes. Keep it small, keep it focused. Um, I would say for your first PDF, um, eight to 16 pages is a good number. And 
you don't realize how much that is until you start writing it up. Um, after introduction is, of course, the content, like we just covered. Um, then license information. Then index, question mark. And the only reason why index is a question mark is because actually creating an index is a dedicated skill and is not something that is easily automate, uh, um, automated within layout programs. I've tried it. It was not good. <laughs> Table of contents are actually very easy to do, which makes my life easier. Um, and one of the reasons I say keep it focused is because there are two things that happen when you start getting creative and getting ideas is you have scope creep and, you have, and then there are stretch goals. And scope creep, if there's any, if have you have ever like paid attention to like the video game industry or any sort of software kind of development, scope creep is when you start coming with ideas. It's just, oh, I want to edit. Oh, I want to edit. Oh, I want to edit. But it doesn't take the whole project into consideration. In our theoretical book about kobolds, for example, I want to have kobold feats. Perhaps that is not the place to uh, start creating an entire kobold setting city backstory. Um, and the reason for that is because uh, think about who your audience is. Are you wanting players to buy this or are you wanting to GMs to buy this? Um, there are always going to be more players than there are GMs. That's just how it is. Um, so while those kobold feats would be really good for players, perhaps the kobold setting would be really good for GMs. And just think about who your audience is and what you want to do. So stretch goals, and I say stretch goals because a lot of uh, beginning publishers want to use like Kickstarter or some sort of crowdfunding way to raise money for their, their projects they want to do. Stretch goals should always enhance the existing project. So again, in our Kobold Feats book, perhaps the first stretch goal is I will create a setting for kobolds that you use in your, you know, underdark equivalent in your world. So and the reason I say, is it a scope creep or is it a stretch goal? Is because when you're outlining your project, you can actually identify areas that you want to branch off of. This is kind of like, uh, there's a technique called mind mapping, where you basically just write down a bunch of ideas and figure out how they all connect together. So, um, next step is something that people don't really think is important at this part of the stage, but how are you going to publish this? Are you going to do print? Are you going to do? Are you actually going to do printing, or are you going to do digital? And the reason why this is important now is because a lot of your pricing for your product is going to be based on whether you want to go digital only, or print on demand, or traditional offset printing. And uh, later in the publication part, I'll explain for, further explain the differences between the two and have examples of the differences. The reason why offset printing is still an option is because it's still cheaper per unit to make. And if you are running a business, you want to keep your costs as low as possible. Um, problem is they have higher minimum quantity orders. Um, so your minimum order may be a thousand uh, copies of something. And yeah, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> Offset printing also gives you a wider variety of paper and finishing options. Uh, paper quality can greatly affect your book. Binding options, uh, it's like, so the way like a textbook is bound is a higher quality binding. It's meant to last, meant to be opened up frequently. It costs <coughs> a hell of a lot more. Um, do you want like 
a foiled finish leatherette cover. That too is going to cost you more and you are not going to get that out of print-on-demand company. Print-on-demand is a higher per unit cost, quality might be, not be as good, and you might not have as good control over the finished product. And also your paper finishing options are limited. And that's just because of the way the equipment is done. If you're a beginning publisher, I would very much recommend you stay with digital uh, uh, to begin with. If you want to set up print-on-demand, you can, but there is still an additional setup cost. You can't just upload the PDF and be done with it, turns out. <laughs> there, there are steps involved, and I have thrown my mouse against the wall many times trying to figure it out, but it is. Because there are multiple print-on-demand print options, and all of them have their own different ways they want you to upload the files. And it's a pain in the butt. <clears throat> so, okay, you have your project data. We want a book on cobalt feats. So, you have, now is the time to start figuring out who you, you want to do it. Do you want yourself to do it? Please pay yourself. <laughs> I know, what a shocker. Uh, I've said before, the only time I ever work for free is for myself, and I still shouldn't do that. <laughs> so, you know you want uh, an 8 to, 8 to 16 page PDF. Let's say roughly a thousand words per page. That means you need 16,000 words if we're going for 16 pages. Um, and number of art pieces is, that is a factor that can change greatly, um, depending on how many pieces you want. Uh, do you want it in color or black and white? Um, because those will also adjust your uh, costs. Do you have any maps that you want to make? Um, and that is also, again, Cost will change. Now, how much you pay your writers can vary greatly. Uh, I have been offered royalties only. Um, but problem is with royalties only is that it is usually payment on publication, and sometimes those things never get published. So you're out, you know, 40 hours of, of your time and haven't seen a dime or one penny, <laughs> as, as, as the case may be sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I've been offered one cent per word. I think the highest I've gotten is eight cents per word, and that was when I did, um, well, that was the Port Peril Gazetteer for Skull and, uh, Skull and Shackles uh, back in the day. Um, Science Fiction Writers of America, their guideline is eight cents per word. Um, Twelve cents per word you're not going to see except from higher tier authors. So um, if you are, and I have a link here on Raging Swan Press's blog that he actually does a price breakdown of how he prices his things. So, and if you are seeking um, writers or any sort of creative uh, talent for your team, there's a reason I have, you know, cats being herded <laughs> for, for one, as our example gave here. It's, it is a complicated, it can be a complicated process, but in your introductory email, just cover all the bases right away. To say, hey, I have a project coming up uh, on, you know, kobolds. I would really love for you to write the archetypes for it. I can, I need X amount of words, and I can pay this rate. To say it up front. Please don't ever say anything like, I will pay you an exposure, because I will hunt you down and beat you. <laughs> um, and again, the only time you should ever be working for exposure is on your own project. This is not a valid payment method for other creatives. Um, please don't be insulting. Uh, so yeah, be very upfront. And the number of art pieces, I like a piece of art 
every other, like every spread. I, that is my layout designer happy place. Is <laughs> never that's how much I want. So if we have a 16-page PDF that we're putting together, we need eight pieces of art. Um, art can also uh, sometimes I can break up the layout with tables or sidebars. And as a side note to sidebars, the length of your sidebar should never be more than half your page. Any longer than that, it needs to be like separated out into its own section. Um, because, and again, this is where the outlining helps because sidebar is a good place to like drop ideas. This is not for a place for a dissertation. <laughs> um, and now it is time for a bit of reality check about planning. Um, sales of your first PDF are very unlikely to break 100 copies. That is not a lot. If you break 100 copies on your first PDF, congrats. <laughs> I mean, go buy yourself a beer. <laughs> does that include tip? <laughs> no, it does not include tip. <laughs> uh, so digital releases very, very rarely break 100 copies. Um, most of the time, it's about 10. And that's pretty common from what I saw when I was working uh, at Paizo for third-party third publishers. So there are a couple of different things you can do to help generate interest. Uh, loss leaders. These are like the free preview PDFs that you often get. Uh, Drive-through RPG slash RPG Now actually has an option where you can do like a quick preview of the PDF you upload. So consider using that as a way to kind of generate interest. Um, you can also try supporting what you do through like various patron sites like Kofi or Coffee, however you pronounce it, Patreon, Indiegogo, etc. And the other reality check is hobby gaming industry uh, leans very heavily on the hobby part of it. Anywhere else outside of the hobby gaming industry, the rates for uh, artists and writers and layout are going to be 10 times as high. And that's the base guideline. So. And the very last reality check time for a publisher is time. Time is absolutely your most precious resource. Consider that while you can do everything that might be involved, like I can do the writing, I can do the art, and I can do the cartography, and I can do the layout. This is, you don't have to. <laughs> it's like I can also do all of my own accounting books, but I hate doing it. And luckily for me, I live with an accountant. So... <laughs> Uh, who also functions as my business manager. Um, so consider how you are spending your time and choose to spend it wisely. Like you could learn how to do layout and InDesign, but the time it would take you to learn it efficiently is not going to be as useful as paying someone else to do it to free up your time to do what you actually want to do. And this is also the point where I say, if you like to write, don't be a publisher, because you will never write again. <laughs> And this is why we still don't have the, you know, book on Geb or Next, because Eric Mona is a busy man <laughs> and because no longer has time to write. So consider how you are spending your time and consider paying someone else to do the things that you don't really want to do. Um, I know it keeps coming back to money, but again, this is, this is the hard truths panel. So we've planned out our PDF. We need, you know, eight pieces of art, 16,000 words. Give or take. So we'll go with that. All right. Next is production. 
This is where you start sending out contracts. Uh, a lot of third-party publishers play it really loose with contracts. Very, very loose with contracts, as in verbal agreement only or written agreement only. Um, be kind to your uh, your creative team and send out contracts um, because it helps protect you and helps protect them. And things you should cover in a contract is like um, payment. When they should be expect, expect, expect to receive payment. Uh, a lot of places are payment on publication or payment uh, 30 days after publication. Those ones are real fun. Um, I think my favorite one is payment on the receipt. <laughs> it's basically you turn over the work, you get paid. And for a while, zero one game was like zero one games was like the fastest payer, and they were in Italy because they like pay same day, and that is fabulous. <laughs> I really like it when I, you know people pay me on the same day I turn over the work. <laughs> it's like I can pay my bills now. My cats will get fed. <laughs> All right, so. Now, the bare minimum, you're going to need a writer. Bare minimum. I mean, you can release Word documents as a PDF. Not great, but you could do it. <laughs> and we also have artists, uh, cartographer, then editor and developer. And I actually really like the Mean Girls uh, editor and developer GIF. I thought that was appropriate for reasons. Uh, and so you have your writer, your artist, your cartographer, editor and developer. Um, out of all of these, the ones you don't want to miss out on is the writer, the editor, and developer. They're going to be key uh, into making your PDF a success, or your, your product, PDF, book, etc. Uh, if any time I am talking too fast, please let me know. Um, I tend to babble when I get excited about something. So, <laughs> and before we go into production, is there anything about planning that people had questions about? Any other like? Productivity techniques I could that you want want to hear about, or anything like that. Yes. So you're using um, one piece of art per spread, mm -hmm. two paid spreads. Yeah. Um, now I've heard, uh, and, I, and I've been exposed to. You know, so when I'm planning, mm -hmm. I use uh, one third. Mm -hmm. line. So if you've got three pages, you should have at least one page. Yes. Do you find, and it needs to be a question, yeah. do you find there's any uh, benefit to going with the, the more art? And when you're talking about a page of art, or, or one, one piece of art per spread, mm -hmm. um, are you talking, you're not talking a full page no. piece of art, just maybe a quarter page? Yeah, quarter, quarter, page, quarter page spot illustration is how I like to average it out. Okay. And the reason why I kind of frame it in those terms is sometimes I also get half page art. Mm -hmm. um, because as a layout, I usually don't have any input on the pieces I get. So I have to kind of make, make do with what I got. And also that will help me plan out, like, do I have any tables to lay out? Because that will suck up a half page of, con of content. Um, also, again, what's the focus of the book? If the focus of the book is setting material, then you're going to want more, a lot more art. Because that will help capture the look and feel of your setting a lot more than a table will. <laughs> For example, in our Personas product for, for Starfinder, mm -hmm. um, it is, I would say, it's probably one piece of art every six pages. Yeah, okay. Uh, because you have, a, you have a full page 
for the for the character, uh -huh. and then a few pages later is their is their wanted poster. Gotcha. Uh, and in That's between that, <laughs> we'll, I'll come talk to you about it later because I'm really proud of it. Um, we got a, we got a five star review on that. So yeah. From from EZG, we're good. Um, so, but one of the things that that we deal with in that is that we've got you know the, the one page character playable, and you know the. Image is mm -hmm. the image is the character sheet. Gotcha. Right. We have the character background. We have all of the NPC blocks. Mm -hmm. so someone's name is the NPC, and then we have the wanted poster, um, which is appropriate. Mm -hmm. But in some, sometimes when we're looking at it, we feel like maybe it's too heavy on the tables, and we're going to be doing more of these. So. You know, that's where the that's where the editor comes in. <laughs> is this information really necessary? <laughs> it's, it's stat block intense. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh. Because the the idea for the product is that you can use it as either I've got five players who need characters who've never played before, or you need a, you know need a bad guy. Or you need a rogues gallery. Yeah, and gotcha. At a lot of levels. Yeah. Codex. Yeah, that's a codex. Yeah. Uh, stat blocks are a unique beast. Yeah. And I love them, and I also hate them. <laughs> Uh, because this layout, I try to keep them kind of not sprawled over multiple pages, yeah. which is really hard, especially at higher level characters. Uh, but we'll get to layout here in a bit. Okay. But, but so you're, yeah. you think that's all right? Yeah, I think that's fine. Um, a lot of what goes into a good page design is its composition and weight. And again, I got a whole section on that in presentation. That's why I separated out layout from production, because it is... I can't begin layout until these other pieces are done. <laughs> or ideally, I don't want to begin layout until yeah, these pieces are done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that it's a good rule of thumb. Mm -hmm. And and as with anything in hobby gaming, it's subject to change. So, writer, artist, cartographer, editor, developer. So writers, they do the thing with the words. Um, and I thought the Wikipedia GIF was very appropriate. <laughs> Because sometimes you just kind of have like a massive project, and like, where do I start? Um, don't use only Wikipedia, though. <laughs> Please don't. So the reason, so how the document gets to me, uh, the, everything that happens before the document gets to me as a layout person, I do not care. Um, whatever helps you write the thing, you can use notepad, a notebook, doesn't matter. As long as the final format I get it in is in a dot .doc format. And I say .doc because .docx imports very oddly into InDesign, like very strangely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, RTFs don't also do not import well. Uh, RTFs are from Win uh, Windows WordPad back in the day. That's where they come from, and it stands for Rich Text Format. Oh, I was talking about some of the weird shit I've seen. I don't know. So. You say the docx back as a doc DOC. That should be fine. Okay. It's not ideal, but ideally I want a dot doc. Um, and the reason why I, I want a dot doc format is because dot doc supports styles, and this is very important to me as a layout person, um, because <coughs> styles are basically is part of the outline process, because styles will help you define things like this is a chapter title. This is a header one. This is header two. This is header three, uh, and that helps me later in layout to make um, the table of contents. Um, and most people do not have the benefit of someone who has also been a writer and developer 
to understand where these breaks are. This is why when you're writing it, it's important to use those. And it's also going to help you as well as a writer to outline things. If you've ever had to write a paper in you know, college, you can kind of understand how the whole layout flow goes. Uh, one of the things to think about is that uh, comments in a .doc format do not get imported to InDesign. So if you're using comments as a way to indicate art notes, I will never see it unless I open up the doc, the doc which I don't like to do because I hate Word. Um, so yeah, uh, usually what I've seen done, and I very much prefer this, is there is a special style they use for art notes. Like, it'll say like, use uh, image, you know, Kobold Witch by Liz Kortz goes here. And that'll help me place it in the, the text. If you're using any sort of version control or uh, changes in a document, make sure they are all accepted uh, and approved before sending the final document over to uh, uh, final for layout. Um, because sometimes I've had to open those things uh, things up and they haven't all been approved. And I kind of and I like, is this good to go? Because nothing sucks more and having to completely relay out a book because you were given the wrong files. So, and on that note, please name your files something that actually makes sense. <laughs> Whether it's version using like, just do like a V1 or V2, V3, or the date. Include the date in the file name because sometimes the file, the, like the file like change date is not helpful at all. Um, other things to think about in your, in your uh, turnover is tables. Tables are very strange as far as getting it from the doc format over into InDesign. There's always something is wrong. So the standard procedure is basically if you're writing it and again how you do it in your writing process does not matter to me as long as by the time I get it your table is no longer a table is, is a series of tab delimited rows and columns. Um, because I can actually just select a group of text and do convert text to table, which helps. And then I can fiddle with it, yeah. And tab delineated is just hitting tab until it, yeah. it lines up properly. Well, no, it is not. It is not the same thing. It is basically tab delimited just means there's a tab between each uh, column in a row. Mm -hmm. You know, row being horizontal, column being vertical. So it's like entry one, tab, detail entry two, and then tab, and then the rest of it, and then return, a full paragraph return, for the next line. Today I learned. Yeah. Um, I, I've dealt with this, so I want to address something. Uh, you need to be careful to make sure that um, you haven't messed with your tab settings. Yeah. If you have messed with your tab settings in your document, mm -hmm. InDesign may pick up extra tabs that you didn't mm -hmm. put there. Yep. And related to this on tab settings, don't do anything fancy with the formatting because it's going to die. <laughs> it doesn't need to line up so much as it needs to have the same number of tabs mm -hmm. every line. If you're doing something like uh, doing an indent on the first line of your paragraph, that's going to go away when I import it into, uh, in, into InDesign. Um, oh, this is the part where I get to show you. InDesign. The number, the number of times that I've had a, a table submitted to me where 
the, the person tried to make it look nice in the Word document. Yeah. And, and, and my question was, why did you do that? Oh, well, because this wrapped around the line. I don't care. care. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> well, I had Word wrap turned on. It's like, so the things that always screw up a InDesign layout is extra tabs or extra returns. Um, like if you do like a double enter after an end of a paragraph that introduces extra returns and the layout. <laughs> um, so this is a uh, quick sample of something I put together that was rejected by the publisher in question, which is fine. It's fine. I, no, no, it's not. I was not, I, I fully admit I was not going by what he wanted. That's fine. So I don't blame him in the slightest. And that that's just kind of the back and forth between yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still like it. It's just not what he was looking for. And that is fine. So, I'm going to do, 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 do. Between want and how design works. Huh? How design works and what they want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, all, it's also, he described one thing, and it was completely not what I, uh, I thought it was. And he's like, I want, you know, you know mid-century style. I'm like, what? <laughs> Mid-century. Uh. <laughs> there are a lot of centuries. There are, in fact, a lot of centuries. Well, we had that problem with an artist where no matter how many times we told them, like, no, no, we want it like this. This, we yeah. Gave visual examples. Uh. Uh, what we got back was not what we It was still great. We still loved it, but it was like, no, we um, Communication but, um, is very tricky. It <laughs> is. Is this in fact? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go away. So this is the so. I am trying to place a doc format, uh, or trying to place a, a document into my InDesign layout. So the first thing you notice, it says, this is using fonts that are currently unavailable on, this, on your computer. Isn't that fantastic? Again, this is where I, I say don't, uh, this, is not, this is not my work, my work laptop. I would not do work on this laptop. <laughs> on my work laptop, I have things like Suitcase Fusion that automatically installs these fonts for me every time I open it up. But I don't own this computer and that's fine. So um, usually, and you'll notice, that immediately everything is highlighted in pink because I do not have the font in question. Uh, and so usually when, oh, it did do it. Okay, so you'll notice down here it has this particular style, um, which is what gets imported from the doc format. If the name of the style matches something that pre-exists in your InDesign document, it will try to do a matchup, and it will happily overwrite anything that you may have already set up. So, again, it's fantastic. <laughs> the, other thing, the other thing I like to do is break down my styles into folders. Problem is, is when you import it, it doesn't recognize the folders as being like valid, <laughs> so you have to like rematch everything up. It's They've had that bug for yeah, there are a lot of bugs I've had for a long time. So I again, I both love InDesign and I hate it. <laughs> um, and InDesign is not, I want to be very clear about this, InDesign is not necessary to do layout. It's not. But it has a lot more flexible options to get your you know, product to market. Which is why I like to use it, plus it is the industry standard. Um, so yeah. You notice all these things are pink? It's because it does not recognize the font that was in the PDF, like Times New Roman, because apparently I don't have it uninstalled on this computer. <laughs> Which is impressive. It is very impressive. Is. I mean, I get Times New Roman, Times Italian, but Times New Roman? I don't know. Who knows? 
So what you can do is you can just like delete style normal uh, and replace with what? Basic paragraph. So it does that, but you notice that is now no longer any sort of bolding. Oh, by the way, don't ignore this text. This is NDA text, and I didn't have a doc handy. So uh, you'll notice that there is no no longer headers. There is uh, spaces in between things. What InDesign lets you do is control the line spacing between paragraphs uh, through through InDesign style. Also lets you control the size of the font, spacing, indents, hyphenation, and many, many, many other things. But the problem is, is when I, you know, imported it, it does not save that information because I also did not import a doc. I imported an RTF. And this is an example of what happens when you import an RTF. It goes to hell in a handbasket. Uh, so, InDesign, I love it. I hate it, but it lets me control, you know, stat blocks. Um, uh, let's me control character styles and the reason that these two things are important is because I can create a table of contents by saying these items these items with these particular styles need to be in the table of contents please output again very useful um, the other thing I have is I have an incredibly useful script that goes through a block of text that says oh this word is italicized this must be a spell I'm going to hyperlink it to the PRD um, this is why I charge what I do. <laughs> it's because I wrote a script to do that for me, because I am not doing that by hand, turns out. Um, yes? Can you talk for just a moment about, yeah. um, about uh, creating styles from selected text? Oh, I don't so, do it. <laughs> so some, I, know, I know some people will say to themselves, oh, this should have been a style. Right. right. Um, I don't do that often because usually uh, I have a framework already in place of like I have all my stat block styles, I have all my table styles. I have that already in place. So, so for someone who say say for someone who's getting just getting mm -hmm. into it and as they're trying to put their stuff together, they realize this should be this should be a thing. A thing. Yeah. So basically, what you can do is uh, you select the text tool uh, and you can say this needs to be. Um, again, I'm used to working with. Uh, oh wait, no, here we are. I'm used to working with two screens, and I have one of those monitors that lets me go vertical. Uh, yeah, that's pretty great. <laughs> and you can do, where is it? Somewhere in here there's like a, where is it? Breakling to cell. New style. Yeah, new paragraph style. And it should just like automatically figure it out. Um, it doesn't always work. Um, yeah. Oh, don't, don't add to my library. Go away. <laughs> so, and basically the way styles work in InDesign is as a matter of inheritance. It says, I'm going to look at this particular style to get my base information from, then we will shall change it to whatever you want it to be. Um, and this gets into a lot more of presentation, which I don't quite want to do yet, but I think it's important for, this is what happens when you import it into, a, uh, into InDesign. It doesn't always go well. Which is why, as much as possible, that stuff needs to be handled outside of InDesign, because sometimes it's more complicated to fix that in InDesign than it is in Word. So ideally, get all that done and out of the way um, before it hits InDesign. Um, next up is artists. And this is probably one of my favorite gifts ever, um, because I feel like that a lot. <laughs> uh, they do the things with the pictures. 
Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's why I love it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Professional. So the way I like to have my art format, um, I would like it in a, in a Photoshop uh, format um, or vector, some sort of vector format, depending on what it is. Pictures are f like illustrations are fine as a Photoshop file. That's actually great. Um, if it's any sort of icon or logo, I want it. I would like it as a vector because um, vector. The difference between a vector format and a raster format, like Photoshop, is a vector format is based on math. It's it's math and art form, and it lets you scale up and down with no loss in quality, which is exactly what you want for logos and for any sort of iconography that you might be using in your design. Uh, rasters do not. Um, and there have been many times that I've gotten a Photoshop file or a JPEG and it is in an insufficient resolution and insufficient size to be a printed product. So I have to do some Photoshop trickery to make it work. I hate it because <laughs> it's, like, it's like I know. <laughs> Every time I look at a book I'm like I had to blow that image up. So, Illustration, I want a Photoshop file. 300 dpi is the minimum recommended uh, resolution for a print file. I really like it when artists send me 450, 450 dpi images because that means I can increase it by 50% more if I have to, to fill up a page layout. Or I can decrease at will. Uh, ideally, I would like three layers. That's the background which I will often drop away. And backgrounds are actually often a just a solid layer of 50% gray. And if you've ever seen this, it's so artists can help control their values in their illustration. It's nice to be able to drop that off and on as I need to. And there's the image. And then there's the artist signature on a separate layer. Um, I like it when the signature is on a separate layer because it means if I have to flip the image for whatever reason, and that's usually to help with composition and page layout and weight. But again, that's in the presentation section. Um, that helps me move the signature around and make sure that, that the artist still get cred gets credit on the page without reversing their signature. <laughs> I mean, I can like cut it out and reflip it myself, but it's easier if it's just a separate layer. So there are a couple of bits of lingo uh, regarding illustration in a printed product. Spot illustration, that is the quarter page illustration that you see. That's like the bust headshot that you see quite a bit. Um, uh, can also be like equipment. That's, that's a really great spot illustration. And as a pro tip if for beginning publishers, get yourself some stock images um, because they're really great to use as filler. <laughs> because sometimes a page comes up short, you've got like, you know, that much text on the page that needs filling and it turns out a shield is a really great thing to drop on the page to make it look good, but you're not, you know, breaking the bank by, you know, spending another $75 on a spot illustration. Other thing is a style guide. Style guide is basically, uh, it's a lookbook. It's a mood board of um, that captures kind of the look and feel of a setting, that kind of what you want to capture uh, in your product. And that's a really good way for artists to reference how to style their characters uh, if you're doing a sort of like background if you need some sort of like environmental imagery that also helps. Um, I use Pinterest quite a bit uh, and because that is a really great just kind of do a broad overview of oh this is really good. Um, 
I would caution against, uh, I would put a caution in any sort of like mass collected group of images. It's really easy to slide into cultural appropriation because the images often do not give you any context uh, for what it's about. Um, and, you know, certain colors mean certain things in different cultures and being just slavishly imitating is not the way to go it, to go at it, it's to be inspired by. Um, so, yeah. Um, next up is cartographers. This might not be necessary for your product, but I definitely want to bring it up. Um, this is also something I do. Um, and there are a couple of things to consider about cartography. Again, Photoshop format. Uh, I haven't really seen a whole lot of vector-based um, cartography uh, very often. It does exist, I just haven't really seen it. Um, three or more layers, depending on what you need. Image, legend, grid, compass rows. Grid, uh, I like to have as a separate option. That way you can drop it out if you're doing any sort of like digital tabletop or digital projection, because that way you can adjust the grid as you need to. Um, compass rows, again, not always necessary, um, but it's nice to have. Uh, Christopher West actually used to integrate his signature as part of the compass rose. He always had it pointing west because his name was Chris West, <laughs> which I thought was pretty ingenious. Um, my personal pet peeve is north should always be the top of the page. <laughs> That's my personal peeve. And I, every time I design a map, I try to keep that in mind. I will completely flip a map around if necessary. Um, and there are a couple of different kinds of map. There is overland map, which is basically this is the continental U.S. and it shows our political boundaries. Um, encounter map, this is what you will most, most commonly see in like an Adventure Path volume or what have you. That is like, this is the structure, there's a hill over here, and, you know, the, and there's you know, a river of lava between the two. Um, next thing is the battle map. Uh, it is a scaled map for miniatures play. These are your flip maps, battle map, and, you know, roll-up battle maps. And then there's city map. And those are all very distinct things that require uh, different levels of scale and also different level of time involvement. Um, battle maps are really hard to make uh, because it requires a lot of detail uh, in it, um, which is fun, but also very time consuming. City maps, uh, not everybody can do city maps um, because it does require a certain amount of knowledge to make a city believable uh, in its structure. And I could go on for an hour <laughs> about how to make good how to make good city maps and good maps in general. Um, do you have a quick question? I do. Okay. I'm hoping that you have the answer. Um, so you say flip mats, mm -hmm. and do you know who you would go to to get a flip mat? Is that something that? I like printing. Yeah. Not not a just not an offset poster, but actually like what Paizo puts out, a, a markable, erasable flip mat. So basically the flip mats are just uh, laminated. Uh, laminated cardstock. Okay. That's basically all it is. So you just basically need to find someone who's willing to do a laminated cardstock poster for you. Um, I have done I have printed out a battle map on uh, like onto like Vista Print and done like on a vinyl banner. That worked out real great. <laughs> I don't remember if I could like use dry erase on it or not, though. There was, um, a, there was a small map company that used to sell it under 
basically just went down to their local Kinko's for mm -hmm. shoots of vinyl and used yep. Yeah, you could also do that too. Just yeah. they they have like the big scale vinyl or uh, big scale laminators that would work too. Um, you're gonna definitely have to figure out ways to like flatten it out though, because otherwise it's gonna be like a roll. <laughs> but it would work. <laughs> um, yeah, battle. I, I again, I enjoy doing battle maps, but it is a lot of work. Um, especially the the bigger you get, the more my machine likes to chug. So you know. The largest one I've ever done is a 24 by 36 battle map. And it's like the file size is bigger than my first hard drive. <laughs> yeah. Real quick, real quick about maps. Um, yeah. So say you're, say you're a small publisher and you're doing something in-house. In mm -hmm. um, now, I, I know what my answer is going to be mm -hmm. regarding this sort of thing, but a lot of the people that I've met have gotten a wild hair about trying to do it all themselves. Mm -hmm. And they've gone out and they've invested in map making software. Sure. Like Campaign Cartographer yeah, yeah. Uh, or Dungeon before it's sort of Yeah, yeah. I, Dungeon was a lot of fun. It, it was fun, but... <laughs> anyway, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, so say you got that. Um, if someone is going to use those products, yeah. uh, what would... Do you have a personal recommendation and what would you avoid? Because um, a lot of these are just you know, stamp tools these days. But. Sure. Uh, uh, it's it's a kind of a complicated question that varies much on what your what your aesthetic is and what right. your out, desired output is. Right. Most of them are doing most of these things are doing things that I would consider half fantasy. Sure. Focused on fantasy. Well, but, but I'm talking about more aesthetic. I'm talking about how do you want it to look, mm -hmm. uh, and again, what is your intended right. purpose for it? I mean. I learned how to map out of you know the red box with all the, the map symbols and all that thing and that I love that, but it has that has a very different feel than what to yeah it has a very different feel than a kind of polished rendered encounter map. Um, I don't know. Do I have an example? I don't have like a full you know map available, but I yeah. do have. Wait, no. I know that the reason again the reason I bring it up is because I know that a lot of people uh, that they're just getting their they're getting their start going and they want to have a you can get stock. You can get stock maps. I have made them. Uh, I know for a long time, uh, Creighton Broadhurst from Raging Swan um, did uh, stock maps as well. Uh, he would like use this in an adventure, and then he would release it as a stock map. So they exist. Mm -hmm. If there is a particular style that you're looking for, um, so the thing you want to look for is commercial use. Is going to be the key. That is, can you can you use this commercially? Um, Personally, I like to use Photoshop, and I also built up a very large library of resources for me to use in maps. Um, but I think RPGMapShare.com mm -hmm. is a great place to get like maps. But again, check to see if you can use it commercially. Um, and RPG Now has a really great selection of maps that you can use. Again, it very much depends on the aesthetic that you're looking for. If you're looking for the black and white, hand-drawn kind of look and feel of like old OSR stuff, that then you know, that's a different aesthetic. I mean, it might work for your Starfinder product, it might not. I mean, you could take the map and like, put it, slap it on a black background and turn it into like a green holographic overlay. You know, you could do it that way. You know, be creative with it, essentially. And also identify, again, like we did back in the planning, what is your goal with this project? All right, so next stage is editors and developers. So, Video game industry has kind of made this a little bit of a blurry line. 
in the hobby gaming industry, there is a difference between an editor and a developer. Editor is usually focusing on prose and making sure that all the text flows together, and developers usually go into the mechanics, and that is more of the technical writing side of things. Um, when I was handling Wayfinder, I had a different set of editors to handle prose stuff than I did to handle mechanic stuff. Uh, because again, it's very, very different. It can be very, very different. And not everybody can do both things, and that's fine. Just, you know, be aware of it yourself. And again, figure out where your own strengths and weaknesses are. Are you really good at just looking at a stat block and going, there's something off with that, it, and, you know, correcting it. And, um, you know, a lot of hobby, a lot of uh, game systems can be a little bit loosey-goosey in some mechanical areas, and so other ones are completely anarchy, and other ones are very codified. Uh, and it's great to find a developer that can do it, can, that can handle that. Uh, house style. House style is usually what are the, you know, the grammar rules that a, you know, publisher operates by. Um, and this goes back to, these are the white people have English degrees. <laughs> As either using the you know, Chicago manual style or using strunk and white, is it grammar or anarchy? Are they doing Oxford comma or not? Are there double spaces after a period? Um, don't do double spaces after a period. I hate you. <laughs> that is at, so when I get something into layout, there's a whole set of scripts that I use to clean up that text. So, uh, yeah. And style guide. So style guide for an artist is very different than a style guide for writers. Style guide for writers is basically how to ref how proper names are handled uh, in your setting, like. Dwarves make dwarven items, and that's how it's spelled. It could also be dwarfen with an F, or elven item with elves with elven items, or elfin, e l f i n. This is what a style guide would handle, and it would be handled like, you know, an American is from the United States of America, uh, Chalaxian uh, is something made in Chelyax, things like that. That's what uh, style guide covers, but it also covers the, the technical side of it. Spells are italicized. Feet names are capitalized. Um, that's also what it covers. And there's like, you know, certain format, format style guides. If you've ever done any writing for Paizo, you'll get that, you know, style guide thing. Of, this is how you do a stat block that for a, you know, uh, a stat block that exists in the bestiary. This is how you do, this is how you, you know, refer to this. This is how you refer to that. That is covered in your style guide. If you don't have one, that's fine. But as time goes on, you may want to consider it. Um, the wikis are certainly very useful in this, in this particular matter. Um, all right, again, reality check time. Production is a many tentacled beast and things can go really, really wrong at the worst possible time as you're trying to get things done. Um, if you are a play, if you are operating under a, uh, you know, a clouder of freelancers, and I say clouder because that's the, you know, plural of a bunch of cats, um, that all want to go in the wrong direction, uh, things will always take longer than you think and longer than you want them to. Uh, freelancers will have stuff suddenly come up. I had to move halfway across the country in suddenly in July of last year. Bill very sick. Uh, people, you know, state of the world, mental health, that's a thing. Something may happen to you. <laughs> so, the, again, the most important resource you have is time. So you want to be able to spend it wisely, but also use the Scotty Principle. This is my favorite thing. Scotty Principle, obviously, is based on Montgomery Scott from Star Trek. Um, 
which is basically always double your estimate on how long you think something will take you. Um, and that's, this is basic, very much a cover your own ass, sorry Ryan, um, about uh, projects. Because some days I can spend 10 hours on a single thing, other days I cannot. And this also helps me build in some time to take a mental break from the project. Because when we spend one time focused on one project for a very long time, you tend to get myopia and you can no longer see the errors in your own work. Uh, building in extra time in your schedule will allow you to take a step back from it and you know, look at it with fresh eyes um, when your break is over. Like laying out a 600 page book, it, it all starts to blur together after a while. <laughs> it's like that is very, very purple. Um, which was a problem I had with the uh, City of Seven, Seven Seraphs, is like I need to take a break from this book because I can't keep track of what I'm supposed to be correcting. So I take a step back, came back to it three days later after a weekend of video game binging, and I was like, oh, and now I can see all the errors in here because it's, I, I don't have it fresh in my memory anymore, and it's, it's, it's break time. Um, if you were given a deadline, a trick that I use for myself is to subtract two weeks from the deadline I am given. Uh, so if I say I have something due at the end of June, I immediately forget that number and set it to June 15th, for example, because it creates a different sort of sense of urgency. Uh, and I will forget that I actually have two extra weeks tacked on at the end. <laughs> so. Uh, I am, in, in essence, tricking my own brain <laughs> to remember a different date so I can get, make myself look pretty awesome. Or also to build in time for, you know, dealing with my own mental health or uh, helping out my family with errands or similar things. Making sure we're not, you know, we're not. Okay, cool. Um, and, but this, the Scotty principle only works if you actually know how long it takes you to do something. Um, and that is something as a freelancer, as a publisher, you need to figure out. Sooner rather than later. I know I can do a full color character illustration in six to eight hours. Um, or less, depending on the day. But I always figure out eight hours. So my rates are based on uh, how much I would like to get paid for that eight hours. <laughs> so. Your, your figures will also need to, to account for that. And if you don't know how long it takes, there are a couple different methods that you can use. Uh, I use Trello, which is an app that is like card-based. Basically, you move cards around based on what you're doing. It's, and that works for me because I'm a visual person. Shock, shock, I know. Um, but there is an app that integrates into Trello called Pomelo, which is the Pomodoro technique, which is based on 20 minute of work, five minute break. 20 minutes of work, five minutes of break. Um, this helps keep me off social media because again, there are things that also use the Pomodoro technique that locks you out of social media sites um, and helps you keep you focused on your work. But you can also like whitelist things if you use like Wikipedia or Pinterest or what have you to you know do your work. Um, again, Pomelo actually lets me know how long that something has taken. Like, I think. Uh, City of Seven Seraphs took me, I want to say, a hundred, a hundred uh, pomodoros to make. Uh, and if you figure a hundred pomodoros is twenty minutes a piece, I'll let you figure out how long it actually took me to make City of Seven Seraphs. 
but they're all probably a fudge factor because I forgot to reset the timer. <laughs> give or take five. <laughs> give or take ten. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, the whole technique is based on uh, like optimal attention span kind of kind of thing. So, and again. The five-minute break actually really shows you how much does not change on social media in five in the twenty minutes. <laughs> but sometimes it does. But it's like four pomodoros with a five-minute break, and then you get like a fifteen-minute break. So and that's when I usually get up and make myself something to eat, you know, does things like. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I usually do the 20 minutes because I live in New Mexico and it's very hot, so it reminds me to go get a drink of water, <laughs> refill my water glass. Um, so yeah, uh, figure out how long it actually takes you to do something. Um, and this is the hour mark, so I'm going to take, if everybody needs to take a drink of water, I know I certainly do, so if you need bathroom break, etc., please do it. This is a great spot to do it. So come back in a couple minutes, I'm going to take fluids. Some protein. It's also a great place for questions. I'm going to shake this really close. Yeah. Um. Sorry, Dean. Um. Have you found it's hard being a I, I have I have mixed views. It's like I don't have mixed views, but I have mixed experiences on this. I have always been something somebody who says, "Oh, you think I can't do something? I'm going to do it better than you." Um, so that that has always been kind of a just that's just me. Um, and most of the time, uh, quite frankly, I've been on the operations side of things, so I'm not as visible as some other of some other. Uh, Female creators in the industry, or you know, women creators. So I don't get as, I don't get a target on me as much. Okay. Um, and I'm I'm just always been that kind of person who keeps their head down and keeps going, keeps doing. And I'm also a very spiteful person. <laughs> I, I have said before on panels that I run on caffeine and spite. Uh, so I will continue to do better, to exist and do better, just to make sure I live to see you be unhappy. So that's how I manage being a, a woman in the game industry. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I've been gaming for 30 years. I've been gaming since 1989. And I have seen the rise and fall. I've saw, you know, the age of, you know, the satanic panic. I saw that. I saw, I saw friends who couldn't share the fact that they, that they were gay, that, you know, they could game or were queer. I mean, it's weird how those good things go together. Um, and... Had to hide it from his family because his family thought it was, you know, satanic. It was, it was, it was strange times, um, and we are still in those strange times. Just a different kind of strange times. <laughs> um, so again, I've always been the. Uh, I learned to play with my play D and D with my brother, so I've never been in a situation where I was denied access to that because I've always been screw you. I'm going to do it anyway, <laughs> and I'm going to do it better. And it's the whole. It's gatekeeping. Is what it comes down to, and I is my I hate gatekeeping, because it's the you must be this nerdy to get on this ride, yeah. but suddenly you are, and the goalposts move. Yeah. So I'm not a fan of moving goalposts, and I'm not a fan of gatekeeping. And if you don't want to play with me, it's fine, because I didn't want to play with you fuckers anyway. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs>
<laughs> I'm going to form my own gaming group with blackjack and hookers, <laughs> etc. I would buy that game. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sex workers, not hookers. Something that I found when I was much younger. Yeah, I, I, 1972 <laughs> birthday, I started playing 1979. Mm -hmm. you know? um, it's so weird watching, like when I was a kid, anybody who wanted to play would play, right? It didn't yeah. matter who you were, it didn't matter anything. Yeah. And, the, and just the, the, like, the really bitter men who were like, you know, <laughs> it really is clubs, that you can't tell who they are until they're at your table, mm -hmm. right? Like you've, I don't know, I've got, I've got a, a bullshit detector. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying, but like, in, in, like I, I've, I've met a lot of people who, like, you Talking to gaming, mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, you know, let's go, let's go, and then you get to the table, and they're like, "Why is there a woman here?" Yeah. Uh, no, they don't say. They don't say woman. They say female. Female. Why is there a girl? Why is there a female girl here? Why is she's a grown woman? Mm -hmm. Can you like not refer to her as a child, please? Mm -hmm. You know, I that is a whole different ball of wax. Yeah. I moderated a panel at the WorldCon uh, many, 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 many years ago. It was in San Jose, and um, we had Dave Arneson and the other third guy that did D&D &D mm -hmm. there, and my friend Julie was on the panel and it was talking uh, about, you know, how gaming comes around and all that, and the guy just kept talking over her, and finally I was like, if you don't stop talking over her, I'm, I'm muting your mic. Yeah. And the look he gave me was like, like, you know, she's a professional. She's currently working in the industry. You're not. Yeah. My least favorite gaming uh, panels to be on are the women in. Oh, oh yeah. no. It doesn't matter the topic, but... Do we exist then? Yes. I was on a um, women in publishing panel at Gen Con, where I was like uh, one of the industry guests of honor. And all of us sitting on the panel were like, we're not going to talk about being a woman in gaming because we're all tired of it. So we're just going to talk about publish publishing. <laughs> and that was a fantastic panel. <laughs> because that panel gets old because we keep having to explain the same thing over and over yeah. and over and over and it is so old. How do I continue to be an asshole? Yeah. You don't. <laughs> yes. I seem to learn that one. Yeah. Um on a diff completely different track. Um, mm -hmm. What do you have any thoughts on like assessing the marketability? Like this is all obviously after you have planned and designed the thing that you mm -hmm. want to tie to. What do you what would you put into assessing the marketability of a certain idea? Uh, look like, at what's the most popular projects on RPG now and Kickstarter. Do some market research. <laughs> Also, at the end of the day, is which one of the, which one of these excites you the most? Because invariably, your excitement about a particular topic will come through in your creation. So, or at the end of the day, roll a dice. Because <laughs> sometimes people don't know they're going to get excited about something until they see it. Uh, it's like I didn't know I wanted a book about you know kobold witch archetypes. Who knew? I mean, I do, but <laughs> yeah. 
Facebook, go to groups where people hang out and do stuff and search specifically by, you know, new questions or whatever, mm -hmm. and see what the things are that aren't answered in the core book. Sometimes, but sometimes that requires you to know what search term to use, and that's not always helpful. It's, it's not. They do the same thing with Google search terms yeah, when yeah. you're going to buy an ad, and it's mm -hmm. like, there's a million terms being used, and only some of them get mm -hmm. hits. I think we got one more, per right, no, two more people to come back. End of the day, right, what you're passionate about. Exactly. But if, if you stumble upon something that looks like it'll get ahead, yeah. there you go. I mean, there, there is something to be, there is, it really depends on how you want to go about your business. There is the, uh, the marketing shark kind of approach is, this is what's sell selling right now, um, and that will probably sell well. And then there's this weird, obscure stuff that you want to write because no one else has written it. Uh, and if you do the stuff everybody, every, that's really popular now, and by the time it's released, it might not be popular anymore, and then your sales will tank. And if you're chasing what everyone else is doing, you have yeah, to think really hard exactly. about differentiating Yeah, if, if it looks like you're chasing what everybody else is doing, it's probably not a good, a good idea to do it. <laughs> because, again, you have such a long production cycle that by the time it gets to market, it's going to be old hat and nobody wants it anymore. But, on that note, it is uh, one of the benefits of being a digital-only publisher is that a turnaround is great. <laughs> uh, as, and we're going to be getting into that to the publication part of it. Is um, a small two-person team for a publisher can put, turn around a product much faster than Paizo or Wizards of the Coast could. And we'll be getting into the reasons for that in a bit. All right, so we're back from a break. And now we're getting to my favorite part of the process, which is presentation. Uh, turns out I really like presentation because it's visual and I like making things look pretty. Uh, but also I like making things look functional. Because um, at the end of the day, a role-playing game book is uh, also needs to be reference-friendly, especially if there's, any, if there's any heavy mechanics to it. It needs to function like a reference manual because that's what it is most of the time. So first step in presentation is design. Um, presentation uh, covers page design in this particular thing, but also covers like logo design. Um, making a distinctive logo is more than just slapping a fancy font onto the page <coughs> because you want to be distinctive. Being distinctive is what helps you stand out. Um, and page design covers Everything in that pink and blue area. Um, and this is where you start getting into how many pages actually end up on, how many words actually end up on the page. Uh, because this is going to cover like the width of your um, backgrounds. Do you have a background? That's also important. What font are you using? Um, a nine point Arial font is going to look very different than a nine point Times New Roman font. And nine point is also very, very small. And I'm getting old in my poor eyeballs. <laughs> uh, and I've actually had somebody specifically say, we want larger font for our book so that we can read it easier. And that was Cthulhu Mythos. Um, so, yeah. That's Andrew Peterson's Cthulhu Mythos. That was that book. Um, and I'm fine with that. That makes me easier to read it. Um, there, uh, there is a whole theory of page design and composition and how to design it, and I've been fascinated with graphic design and page design since I was about eight. So, 
I was the kid that was ordering the, this is how graphic design works from the Scholastic Book Fair. Well, other people were ordering Babysitter's Club. <laughs> I was that kid. Um, so yeah, I've always been super fascinated by it. And just a couple of quick tips. Um, when you're placing an image on the page, if there's a character in it, you want them looking towards the spine. It helps kind of ground the character in reality. Um, and you'll hear, hear me talk about like weight. Um, images have a weight on the page, so generally you want to put them at the bottom of the page because it kind of helps, it's, it's a visual thing. Uh, don't be afraid of negative space or white space. You may be able to cram 2,000 words on a page. Don't want to do it because then it's not readable. And ultimately, again, this is a reference book. It needs to be readable. Um, tables are considered light, so I try to put them at the top of the page. Um, sidebars are also weighty, so I the sidebars always need to go on the outside of the page. Um, because you don't want to break the flow of the text when you're reading. So sidebars on the outside of the page, tables ideally on the outside of the page, unless it's like a half page kind of deal. Um, yeah, <laughs> those, are, those are really, really quick. And uh, uh, it's all subject to change too. Uh, some other things to consider is that when you're doing your trade dress, trade dress is basically how does your project look and feel? Is it a Starfinder product? You're using a lot of like chrome accents and blues and you know that kind of get that kind of futuristic feel. Um, trade dress is also considered intellectual property or product identity, at least by Paizo standards. So you can't make your product to look like a, a, one of Paizo's product because that's considered uh, trade dress product identity. Um, font choice is also one of those things. Uh, it's like you could use the Starfinder fonts if you want to. I would definitely not recommend it because, again, trade dress. Um, font choice is a big topic. Um, serif fonts, which is like Times New Roman, those are easier to read in large chunks than a sans serif. Serif fonts are great for like background story or exp uh, expository text. Sans serif is great for quick reference. And by quick reference, I mean stat blocks. Stat blocks, um, uh, item stats things like that. Or this is the kind of thing because your eye is e more easily drawn to it. Font choice, I would say no more than four font choices in your entire project. Because any more than that, your eye starts to get confused. It doesn't look cohesive. Um, you may want to use the fancy old English calligraphy, but do not use it in all caps. <laughs> it looks terrible. Um, you may want to do like a nice fancy scripted font for your sidebar. Uh, there, is, uh, there, was, uh, there was a book back in the day, Plot and Poison, um, it, and they did the like full fancy calligraphy style font for their entire sidebar. It is completely illegible. I still to this day cannot read it. <laughs> um, not all fonts are the same size. Again, a nine point Arial font is actually going to take up less space than 9-point um, Times New Roman font, and that's because of font kerning and spacing, and ligature choices, and hyphenation choices. A lot of factors go into it, and most of what I end up doing when I'm setting up a uh, page design for somebody is I am making a font selection. Because <laughs> there's a lot to choose from, and I don't want to keep using the same one in each, each page design I do. So 
it's basically I am creating the look and feel for this company, for this pro for this particular project. I want to make it distinctive from everything else that is out there. Uh, the other thing to consider when doing any sort of design is how does this look to somebody who is colorblind? And I'm going to share an anecdote because it's funny, and also he would very much he actually I actually asked him, so what do you want me to cover in this panel that you think nobody else has thought about? And he's like colorblindness. So he has red green color he's red green colorblind. And one day we were playing on the deep forest flip mat from Paizo, and we were using dry erase markers to you know indicate spell effects and whatnot. And we're using a dark red marker. We were using a dark red marker on a green map and we're just drawing it out and and they're like we're like okay we're ready to go and he's like what? <laughs> and he literally could not see what we had drawn on the map because he's red green color blind. So what do your color choices look like to somebody who's completely colorblind? And there are several different kinds of colorblind. Red green is the most uh, most common. Yeah. There's a website. Yes. We use this website. There's a website that will show you. I can't remember the name, but you yeah. can search up colorblind yeah. values. It will show you what your colors would, might look like to mm -hmm. someone with certain color discrepancies. Yeah. The best way, the and without having, without doing that, the best way to do that is value. Value is basically uh, dark to light, you know, uh, grayscale. What does it look like in grayscale? That is a quick way to figure yeah. out what it looks like. Um, but also, we go into page design. Who did you select as your printer? You know, way back in that planning stage that, you know, kind of forgot about? <laughs> because that will definitely have an effect on a page design. Uh, having to completely relay out a book because suddenly I lost a half inch uh, on my page is very unfortunate. <laughs> I stayed up very, very late that night. Um, so yeah, that is a uh, consideration. Um, let's see, make sure I'm saying layout. Oh, I completely forgot the layout section. <laughs> because, all right, I was going to go into InDesign again, which we already saw that. Um, so, <sighs> layout can be complicated. Um, but mostly because, again, there's a lot of moving parts or, you know, art is late and suddenly I have, you know, art to fill in this page um, and I don't have any art. So I can, like, basically send it back and say, hey, can you fill this in? <laughs> this, needs, this needs something. It needs, like, two more feet or something like that in this section. Um, but again, you, you are the, the temptation to fill all these empty spaces with text is very, very strong. But sometimes the eye needs a break from all text all the time, so white space is good. Add some thicker margins on the on the uh, the page design. So there's a lot of fiddly bits that go again. This is the this is the fiddly bits panel. <laughs> um, but after everything is done in layout, uh, I have a setting that I basically uh, you know send out a, basically a digital proof out to the publisher. And that's the time for them to do proofread of it. And there are a couple of ways to do proofreading. Um, so you can either, yeah, so proofreading, you can do a couple of different ways. Uh, most of the time, I just get a spreadsheet back saying, hey, on this page, this needs to be this. On this page, this needs to be this. On this page, this needs to be this. The other method you can do is uh, in copy. 
which I have, again, I have a love-hate relationship. I have a love-hate relationship quite a bit with Adobe products. Now, in InDesign, what you can do is basically say, oh, this, this thing here, I need to create an in-copy assignment for it. And what in-copy allows you to do is basically, or what InDesign lets you do is say, is lock down your layout so that nobody else can make adjustments to it. All they can do is edit the text um, or various levels of lockdown. Um, so basically what I can do is create the assignment in InDesign and I can open it up in, in copy for somebody to make edits over this. With the rise of cloud sharing services it actually makes you know remote editing very easy. But make backups of your files before you do it. <coughs> because the Aethera campaign setting had that problem. Uh, suddenly decided that, ironically, the section on Orbis Aurea, which is basically this planet that is under a lockdown, like a communications lockdown kind of thing, didn't want to be edited, <laughs> which, which was ironic on so many levels, so I ended up having to do it myself. And then, of course, it decided that it would not export beyond that point when it was exporting PDF. So, that, has some pro that was fun. Um, no, it was not. Uh, hard proofs. Hard proofs are something you can opt for when you are getting it printed. And, and there's an option for hard proofs and it doesn't cost two arms and two legs. Um, I would opt to get it. Because hard proofs will let you see color uh, corrections and sometimes that is very important, especially when you're doing print-on-demand versus um, uh, offset printing. So uh, the penultimate step is publication. And you know, and nowhere in this have I mentioned getting it to the customer yet, because that is the last stage of this. So publication covers three sections. There's printing, shipping, and distribution. Um, and let's begin with printing. So offset printing. Um, offset printing is the traditional print, me print methods before digital was a thing. You basically take a photograph of your page in, negative, in a negative, put it onto your plate cylinder using clips, and then you would have paper feed through and make your pages. And the reason why you always have like 16 page signatures, because that's the size of uh, a piece of paper that's standardly used in printing, and then it would be cut, cut down to size. Um, so if you ever wonder why Paizo's books are in 16 page increments, that's why. It's cheaper to print that way. It's called an eight. Yeah. For, for, if you're ever going to offset printing and they ask you how many eights, eights. you have, yep. that's Correct. what that is. Yep. Uh, CMYK color is for cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. That's the additive colors using in the printing process. Uh, basically, all additive colors that you see um, on printed materials is layers of those four colors. Um, and digital. Uh, RGB, red, green, blue, can create a larger, ver it can, there's a discrepancy between the two about uh, what colors they can reproduce. So what you see on your screen is not necessarily what you're going to see on the piece of paper. This is why digital proofing or hard proofing is so important. Um, because not everybody has the uh, color correcting software and hardware for their monitors. I don't. Because <laughs> I don't want to spend $500. Um, the example there is an example of a sheet-fed, single-color offset press. Um, this is when I was in print shop, that's what I learned on. Um, 
Next up is, this is an offset press. Um, if you look at the scale, uh, that is a palette underneath that roll of paper. It is a single, that is a continual, continuous feed paper. This is what you would see in like a newspaper, a newspaper press. Um, and those floors are reinforced, like reinforced steel, um, because those machines weigh so much. They will actually sink the concrete over time. Yeah. 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 Um, so in each step of the process, there is there is a layer of ink, and there's a dryer, and another layer of ink, and a dryer, another layer of ink, and a dryer. And each step of the process has a different plate for different color separations. Now I know you had a problem with the, with uh, ink. Uh, in, total ink to 40%. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, because and that's because paper can only take so much ink, <laughs> and how much ink a piece of paper can take really depends on the paper. And this is why uh, Offset has more options, is because they can control the amount of ink that goes onto the paper. Now, Print On Demand is a new beast, new-ish new beast these days. Um, it's becoming more popular um, because it is uh, more accessible, because not everybody can afford to print a thousand copies of a book to make an Offset, you know, make running that printer for four hours. <laughs> because that's how fast they go. Um, this is an example of a Xerox digital press. I think this one does the printing, the cutting, the, and the binding all in one go, which is pretty impressive. Of course, you go on their website and they'll ask, please call for a quote. <laughs> and that's just for, you know, that's just to, for the equipment. Um, basically, the print-on-demand machines are like a really, really, really fancy laser printer. It uses toner instead of ink to deposit the uh, images onto the page. But anybody who's worked with a laser printer knows those colors can be super saturated uh, and not accurate. Um, it's actually something I ran, in, I ran problems into when I switched from using my laser printer for my prints to a photo printer, like a Canon photo printer with 10 ink cartridges. And it's like, oh my god, these colors are accurate! This is amazing! It's like, oh yeah, that's the difference. <laughs> Um, these ones, uh, so the problem with laser printers and things similar of that nature is there's a lot of like power surges because it's, you're suddenly using a lot of power at once to charge up the corona wires and all that other fun stuff. So issues with print-on-demand and I uh, uh, have no problems with print-on-demand. It's just a quality issue and it really depends on what you're doing. So problems with uh, potential issues with print-on-demand, color accuracy and saturation. This can be very problematic if you have a lot of dark images. <laughs> uh, price per unit. Price per unit on print-on-demand is much higher uh, because you're doing a limited run. Uh, you're limit limited, limited. You have limitations in your substrates. That's what, what are you printing on and binding options. Um, and again, price. Ah. So I asked two different people about, if you were doing a, pa a panel on uh, this kind of topic, what do you want to include? I asked um, one of Paizo's former finance managers, and I asked the current warehouse manager about things they would want to cover, and it's shipping. <laughs> Did you have a quick question? Um, I had a question. So I've done print on demand for, for mm -hmm. fiction, mm -hmm. and depending on uh, where I've gotten it printed, say mm -hmm. for example, uh, Drive Fiction or Amazon, mm -hmm. the same options 
chosen, mm -hmm. they use the same, they, they actually use yeah. the same variable, the same options chosen to result in different yes. uh, quality. Yep. Uh, do you have a preferred print-on-demand that you would suggest to someone getting started that, that <sighs> they might want to use instead of somebody else? Like RPG Now and DriveThru is the most easily accessible. Yeah. Um, they're the same yeah, not now. Uh, they're the they're they're the most accessible, so I would probably go with them just yeah. because the publisher the publisher subsystems and ecosystems on drive on drive through are much easier to be you know cross pollination. Yeah. I don't like using uh, like Amazon's direct publishing just because of their licensing agreements and a lot of other factors. Uh, me personally, uh, I use Lulu. And only use Lulu because it integrates with my e-commerce software. So, <laughs> if you want to see an example of print-on-demand by Lulu, you can look at my Inktober sketchbooks downstairs because that's what they use. Uh, that's what I use for to print them. What's the e-commerce software? Uh, Shopify. Shopify has a lot more options for things I want to do, so that's why I use them. Um, so back to shipping. Um, I put the quote there because that's probably the best thing I can think about to sum up. Uh, uh, how to handle shipping things, which is for the uh, you know recording here. It says, "Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change things when I can, and the wisdom to know the difference." Uh, and the first thing to remember that free shipping is not free. So, Amazon can ship free because they make for it up on volume, and they get ridiculous volume discounts from the shipping companies to do so. So. You you will always be Mitch. You will never. It's like if you are offering free shipping, you are losing money, straight up. So things to consider about shipping. There are some things that are out of your control. Some things you can kind of control, and some things that are absolutely in your control. Things that are out of your control. The weather. We have not reached a point in our uh, our lifetimes where we can control the weather. <laughs> so just accept that there will be you know delayed shipments because of flooding, because of snowstorms, because of any of, you know, any number of things. Second thing out of your control is random custom searches at port. This is where they decide we're going to hold back this entire shipping container or five because we feel like doing a search on it. You can't stop that. It's just, you have to accept that. There have been a number of times that Paizo's gotten randomly searched. Uh, and again, not much you can do that, you do about that, because that's just how it is. Uh, other things you cannot control are price increases in shipping. Those go up pretty much every year, without uh, maybe buy a penny, maybe buy more. It's gonna go up. It's something you gotta account for. Account for pricing. Uh -huh. <laughs> Unintentional pun there. Things that are mostly out of your control are postal strikes. I say mostly out of your control because voting does have an impact on striking, etc. Uh, tariff increases, again with the voting. Uh, big news lately is of course the uh, tariff increases on a multitude of consumer products. Some of them include board gaming. Um, other things that are mostly out of your control is shipping damages to you. And also sometimes shipping damages away from you. Because once it leaves your hands, it is in the hands of the postal gods. Things you can do to mitigate this kind of shipping problems are what you use to pack your materials um, and advertisements. I put in there, but for a reason, and I'll explain the main reason for shortly. Packing materials is probably one of the things you have the most direct control over in controlling your shipping costs. You can increase your packing materials 
at a, a greater increased cost to you, but that means you, may, you won't have to do as many returns and that it'll help get you the customer in a good condition. Um, like when Paizo started adding the corners for hardcovers, um, didn't have as many returns or you know people requesting replacements because the packaging is better protected. And advertisements. So there is a particular level of mail service that the, po that the USPS offers called Media Mail. Media Mail set is, is the cheapest form of shipping, but you cannot have advertisements. So if you include an advertisement in your book, you do not qualify it for Media Mail anymore. If you include advertisements in your box, you do not qualify it for Media Mail. So it's something to consider, uh, but it is still the slowest method of shipping. And the other thing to include on here is the magic number is four US pounds. And that is because that is the breakpoint on international shipping. And, thing, and that it includes the weight of the, your product, that includes the packing material, that includes the box. If you can keep it under four pounds, you can usually get better shipping rates. Um, and for US priority mail, I think the current rate is 725 uh, if it is under 70 pounds. So if you're shipping 70 pounds of product, good job. <laughs> Just one book. I've made books that big. Um, so, shipping is uh, a many-headed hydra, um, and when you start involving international shipping and customs, things like that, that is beyond the scope of this panel. But uh, when you start doing like, uh, if you're doing any sort of like crowdfunding, Kickstarter, etc., try to get an, a ballpark figure of how much it's going to cost to weigh something do a faux box <laughs> of, of your product and, and wait, then add another 25% on top <laughs> just to cover your bases, to cover those that are shipping further, because shipping will sink a company easily. I, uh, I worked for UPS store for a long time, mm -hmm. and I used to have people call and say, hey, what's it like, you know, I'm sending, this is my business. Mm -hmm. I'd say, pick the furthest zip code you can, and, yep. and take your weight and add five pounds. Yep. And then I'll tell you the price, yep. and that's the price you want. Yeah. And they'd be like, well, that's expensive. Yeah. Like, well, what if somebody there buys it? Like, what do you... Congratulations, so, you found your market. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I actually asked my, uh, so my, my, my partner, he was the former finance manager. Uh, I asked him to kind of like give me some ballpark figures so I can scare the shit out of you guys. <laughs> Sorry, Ryan. Um, so he said for a container of, I think it was Adventure Card Game, it cost thirty thousand dollars to ship that to us. To like the pies. The shipping yeah, the full shipping container full of adventure card game. It was like thirty thousand dollars from start from printer printer to front door freight. Yeah. Yeah. Freight Yep. <laughs> and uh, getting from, you know, Paizo to Gen Con in Indiana Indianapolis is also incredibly expensive. So shipping nobody likes paying shipping costs. Nobody. <laughs> Easy stream. I spent. Uh, I couldn't. I spent $125 shipping my product up. That it wouldn't be enough. I've known people that have done that. All right. I, I, most of the stuff that it was in my my checked baggage, my carry on was my product for the show. So if you want to, you know, help me save on shipping costs, come buy my stuff at my table down in the vendor hall. All right, distribution. So distribution is something a lot of people don't really consider, 
But there are three main methods to get your product to the customer. And that is uh, through a traditional distribution. In the US, it is uh, done usually through Alliance is the big one. And Alliance is a subset of Diamond. And exactly. <laughs> and Diamond has a stranglehold on the comic book and hobby gaming industry. There's no way around it. You can, they absolutely do. You can fight Magic the Gathering for that. Yep. Uh, there are, yeah, again, it is what it is. So it goes. <laughs> it's not ideal to only have one major means of getting your product into customer's hand. But fortunately, we are in the day of the age of the internet, so you can actually also do a run around the distributor and you go direct to the retail store. A lot of uh, publishers are now offering retailer backer levels on Kickstarter, which is a fantastic idea, because this is a common complaint of, you know, uh, retail stores of them not they're losing out on sales because, you know, the, the customer can now go direct to the publisher. Turns out, um, so. Wholesale pricing is usually between 45 and 55% of your MSRP. MSRP being manufactured suggested retail price. Um, so yeah, just, just think about that every time you buy something. <laughs> um, I think when I was buying from Alliance, I was, let's say 45% of MSRP uh, when we were buying from Alliance. Um, finally, the final step is Profit with a question mark. Um, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. If you don't know what Jira issues are, Jira is a bug tracking software system. Um, and yes, it's very accurate. So the things we're going to cover in profit is pricing, errata, and stuff I probably forgot. Um, pricing. It's time for some math. Who likes math? I do not, um, but it's necessary. So uh, the numbers I got here is for a uh, hypothetical adventure path volume. So if we have 96,000 words, five cents a word, that's $4,800. If we have editing and development at one cents a word, which is a horrible rate for editing, um, 48 pieces of art at $100 of each, and that's also a horrible read for art. Layout, that is, the that is what I would charge for layout for a 96 page book. And that includes you know, page design. And $3,000 for printing 250 copies, which is also horribly priced. <laughs> I just like I went for like the worst possible option here. And that will cost you $14,290 for 250 physical copies which breaks to $57.16. Do you know anybody who would pay $57.16 for an a, a soft cover AP volume? <laughs> so, minimum MSRP is three times your cost. Um, you notice shipping is not listed anywhere in here, right? <laughs> so minimum, if, with these numbers, minimum MSRP is $171.48. And that's enough to cover your initial costs uh, and make a little bit of profit and also cover some other expenses like, you know, warehousing, shipping. <laughs> so, and if you want to sell it to uh, wholesale, it'll be $85.74. So, yeah, bad news, guys. It's not a very profitable industry. <laughs> 
Um, but, yeah. So, errata. This comes up very, very often of why, guys, why don't you people print more errata. Heard this all the time when I worked at Paizo. It's because it's not worth it. <laughs> it's not worth it unless you're doing a new print run. And most people don't ever get to the point where they're doing a print run, an additional print run, or even an initial print run. Uh, I think it is absolutely worth it to, if you're planning any sort of print compilation. Uh, again, earlier we were talking about making multiple smaller PDFs into a larger book or print. Then it is a perfectly great time to do errata. I think that is ideal. Actually, one of the things I really, really, one of the examples I like to use from the industry is when uh, Palladium released their Ultimate Riffs hardcover a few years back. Riffs Ultimate hardcover a few years back. It was a they put it into a hardcover. They made a brand new shiny cover image, uh, and but they did not update the content at all. It was same content that was in the soft cover and had been in the soft cover for years. And it was an opportunity to actually reorganize their rulebook and put it into a flow that made sense because it has never made sense <laughs> to me. It's like, why are you putting this attribute stuff in the back of the book when the character creation is at the start? And that is also something that should be in, I somehow forgot to include in the planning section, is there needs to be a logical flow to your book. It's like, the, so if you're using Pathfinder or Starfinder, it falls a very like set course of this is your race selection, this is your class your you know class selection, this is your character options, here's your skills, here's your feats. Because that is the order the best order to create a character in. And your your product that you're creating should follow that as closely as possible if that's what you're doing. So creating a logical flow to your book is gonna be and why Palladium didn't do it, other than money, um, still boggles me to this day. So the question you need to ask yourself, is updating your PDF worth it? Um, how much time are you going to devote to this? Wh is this actually preventing you from releasing new material rather than constantly updating the old material? It's up to you, but there is this fantastic antidote that James Sutter used for many years in his writing fiction and editing uh, panels was, there is a certain level of rat poop that is acceptable in food, according to the FDA, and typos are like that. <laughs> and you just have to be okay with that. <laughs> because the time involved to fix that 1% of error or whatever it is, it's not worth it. When you could be, be it could be better spent creating new stuff. Um, and the last, the last section here is, did I forget something? And the answer is probably going to be, going to be yes. So this is where I'm going to be opening it up. Any questions? Um, how much time do we have left? Oh, we actually have about 15 minutes left, so I typed this great. <laughs> so, questions, yes? Something that uh, I, don't, I don't think you covered in the actual uh, writing and layout section mm -hmm. is accessibility for people with reading disorders. Yes, um, so uh, there are a couple of ways you can do that. Um, and that it falls quite a bit onto the layout portion of it. Mm -hmm. uh, font, again, font choice is incredibly important for people who have dyslexia or dyscalculia. Um, there is actually a font uh, called Open Dyslexia. You'll see it on like Kindle um, that you could use. Uh, if it, it, it definitely, I would definitely consider it. Um, also, page, the page organization and layout actually helps quite a bit with screen readers. Yeah. Um, so if you're doing, a, it's that's why it's important to have like this is a header, this is this is text because screen readers can actually pick up on that. And um, InDesign has an option. Uh, when you're ex you can export out to EPUB, 
in, um, in design, and that'll actually also help break things down for screen readers. Um, what else? Anybody else have any other questions? That was an excellent point about accessibility. Anybody else? Questions? Yes? How would you kind of map this framework to a Kickstarter? This is a theoretical exercise. Um, goodness. Definitely do the planning stuff. Uh, that's, so mapping out a Kickstarter is figure out what Kickstarters have been successful, at, but successful more than monetarily. That's the part where you need to start reading about um, uh, like comments and back and feedback. And on that note, there's always going to be somebody who's unhappy for whatever reason they choose. <laughs> and again, it falls back into there's some things out of your control, there's some things that are in your control. And it's always good after a project to do a post-mortem. And those, again, this is a video game term of, okay, what did we do right and what did we do wrong? Because there's always room for improvement, and anybody who says there isn't is lying to themselves, most of all. Um, but for a Kickstarter, it would be finding out what niches people are interested in, doing research in, vari in various communities, not just like, I want to do research on, you know, what things people are looking for in Starfinder. For example, and I think we had this discussion of there's not a lot of it, like third-party adventures for Starfinder yet, um, so that's a possible niche that could be filled. Uh, it's you know going outside of one specific community, go to other communities as well, because they have might have other points of topic they, that they're discussing that aren't being covered in another place. So research, <laughs> research, but also, again also planning, uh, getting price quotes from printers. And a thing to note about price quotes is those are usually good, only good for a certain period of time because it's usually based on current stock uh, and current expected ship times if you're printing out of, out of country. So there's a lot of factors that go into that. Do your research, do some homework, add 25% fudge error. <laughs> and on a Kickstarter note, you're going to lose a lot of money to bank fees. Uh, and also you're going to lose a lot of money to cancellations or credit card failure. And I think I've heard the estimate for Kickstarter and Amazon fees and whatnot is 25%. So figure that into your minimum costs for a project. I so as a as somebody who's self-employed, I lost like well not really lost, but uh, I, I had over like $2,000 in like bank fees alone last year, whether it's through PayPal or th processing fees or whatnot. So because. You can't get those volume discounts on credit card processing unless you actually have volume, it turns out. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, there, there are a lot of fees that go into it. There are a couple of different places you can use for research on this topic. Um, so yeah. Uh, yes? I actually have a question. Yeah. So one of my uh, acquaintances, he was running a Kickstarter and mm -hmm. got found, funded like 75% maybe in, and then he had a couple of days remaining and then he chose to cancel it all together. Why would somebody make this decision to cancel it all together? Because it can be overwhelming. Uh, success can be overwhelming. Then you suddenly realize you have a lot of work to do in order to get this process, and it can be incredibly overwhelming to, when you start realizing how much work actually goes into it. And if he doesn't have a good supportive team, mm -hmm. if he's doing it all himself, I'd cancel it too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because it's a lot of work to do by yourself. Um, and it can be incredibly intimidating because you hear so many stories about Kickstarter failures that it, it, you hope you don't become another statistic kind of thing. Okay. So, so there's, I mean, there's so many factors and without knowing what was going on, I couldn't tell you. But, I mean, if I was in his shoes. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like, uh, emotionally, I think it's, 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 it's
It could be something as simple as uh, that 25% tariff that suddenly popped up. Suddenly, it's everything is going to cost 25% more, and your calculations figures for doing the Kickstarter are no longer valid. It could be simple, something as simple as that. Could it also been up for 26 days? days yeah. Yeah. Or without a full social media push. Yeah. Is, is there's a, there's there's a lot of factors that could go into it, but then yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and and honestly, if something fails, that's not a bad thing. It's, it's a time to reassess what your goals were and see if you were actually, you know, either faffing around or just actually, you know, focusing on what you want to do. It's, you know, Kickstarter has this thing where it's like the Kickstarter 100 or it's just like 100 of a product and that's it. It's all you do. And that could be a great way to like test out, like, I have an idea for X. Um, you know, and again, there's so many factors that could go into a success or failure of a project. This is why I also, again, recommend smaller more frequent releases to kind of build up your cachet with the with the with the uh, fans and uh, other players. So, is that any other questions? Yes, no. Great, I think we're done. <laughs> uh, I want to thank everybody who uh, stopped by here on the panel. I appreciate it. This is a topic that I spend a lot of time thinking about as I'm, you know, fixing another table in InDesign. Um, <laughs> It's usually where my best ideas come up. It's like I'm fixing this damn thing and I know it could be better because it can always be better. Um, and I want to keep pushing people to always be better instead of falling back on probably the easier route but may not be the best route. Um, and I want to encourage each and every one of you to keep pursuing uh, whatever creative, creative outlet you choose, especially if it's in gaming because uh, I think it's a wonderful hobby that more people need to enjoy. So. Thank you everybody for coming and I appreciate you guys being here. And stop by my table in the vendor hall. <laughs> Till five today because of the bank to the banquet. Uh, and tomorrow it's six. Yeah. So but it's open till five today, so